Chapter Twenty Two of the Shortline War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two: The Winning of the Road. The Chicago papers reach Tillman City by nine o'clock every morning, and the inhabitants wait till then for information from the outside world. At supper time, they read fragmentary Associated Press dispatches and a more or less accurate chronicle of local happenings in the Watchmen. Since the coming of the new editor, Tillman's one daily had contrived to worry along without an assistance of a patent inside, for he was an ambitious young fellow with a knack for writing snappy editorials, and he made the most of the meager news the city furnished. He did not hear of Jim's arrival in town and his drive to the hospital until next morning. When told of it, he laid down his pipe and began slipping on his coat. "'I suppose he's in town yet.' he said to the reporter who had brought the news. If he is, I'm going to see him. Then I can make something out of what he might have said. He's the kind that makes me mad. He's got as good a story inside him as any man in the United States this morning. But it would take a chemical process to get it out of him. Jim was in his room at the Hotel Tremaine, trying to decide upon the best way to bring Blaney to terms. The most direct course would be to go to Blaney and try to convince him of the worthlessness of McNally's contract. Blaney was badly scared already. That was evident enough in his manner during the interview Jim had had with him on the Artesian Road. The two weeks of suspense during which time it was clear that Jim was winning would not tend to increase Blaney's confidence. It would not take much of a bluff to complete his demoralization. But the difficulty lay in the manner of approach— to make the bluff most effective, Blaney should be frightened into seeking Jim. If he went to Blaney's house, the contractor would probably suspect that some weakness in Jim's position made him depend on Blaney's aid. Jim was not worrying over the problem, as other men worry, for he had been quite sincere in telling Bridge that they were sure to win. Years of this kind of fighting had given him a just estimate of the immense value of time, and he had forty-eight hours left in which to get control of the Tillman City stock. Campaigns have been lost and won again in less time than that. When the bellboy brought up the editor's card, Jim stared at it a moment, then told the boy to show him in. Had the boy looked up, he would have seen that Jim was smiling. His plan had come to him. When the editor came into the room, he found Jim lounging in a big chair with his feet on another bent apparently on spending the morning in luxurious idleness. Jim did not rise, but greeted him cheerfully, and the editor took the chair Jim nodded to and accepted the cigar Jim offered him. This was the beginning of what the editor afterwards spoke of as his trance. For there sat Jim Weeks, the wary, the close-mouthed, the reporter's despair, artlessly telling the whole inside the history of the fight for the M&T. At first, the editor hardly dared to breathe for fear of bringing Jim to his senses and the story to a premature conclusion. But as the president talked, apparently in his right mind, the editor became bolder and began asking questions. In answering, Jim told him that the fight was practically over. It would formally be decided on Tuesday at the stockholders' meeting, but as Jim and his allies controlled a majority of the stock, the outcome was certain. Then, having cleared away the preliminaries, Jim came to the point. Your finance committee here in Tillman is going to vote your stock against us, though, he said. Porter has pulled their leg with a fake contract, 
and they're just about big enough fools to be caught by that sort of a game. They've known about it for some time, and I might have done something if we hadn't stood to win anyway. As it is, they can't beat us, no matter how they vote. There were more questions and more perfectly frank answers, and at last the editor knew practically all there was to know about the dealings of the wily Mr. Blaney. Jim did not seem to take the contract very seriously, but he was evidently perfectly familiar with its provisions. When the editor rose to go, his head was fairly a whirl. "'Mr. Weeks,' he asked, "'have you given this story to anyone else?' "'No,' said Jim. "'We don't come out till tomorrow afternoon,' said the editor. "'We haven't a Sunday edition. "'Will the story be any good by that time?' "'That's as you think,' said Jim. "'I shan't give it to anyone else.' The bewildered editor went on his way rejoicing, and Jim packed his bag and started for Chicago. He had planted his mine under Blaney, and he could do nothing more with him until the time for exploding it. Jim was satisfied with his plan. The story which the watchman was to print the next afternoon was almost sure to scare Blaney into submission. True, the time was short between the issue of the paper and the stockholders' meeting, but this fact was, after all, rather to Jim's advantage than otherwise. The only element of uncertainty in Jim's success lay in the possible counter-move which McNally might make to reassure Blaney. The chances were, Jim thought, that McNally would not hear of the story in the Watchman until Tuesday afternoon. Jim reached Chicago late Sunday afternoon. On Monday, he and Harvey were back in the office working on other matters. Not until Tuesday morning did Jim start for Manchester, where the stockholders' meeting was to be held that afternoon. At eleven o'clock, Jim walked into the lobby of the Illinois House, lighted a cigar at the newsstand, nodded familiarly to the clerk, and passed on into the writing room. The clerk said to a bellboy, "'Go into the bar and tell Mr. Blaney that Jim Weeks is here.' Blaney had been waiting for that message for the past hour, for he had told the clerk to let him know as soon as Jim should arrive, and he had expected him earlier. But now he only swore savagely at the bellboy and ordered another whiskey. It was the last of a long series of bracers, and it did its work a little too well. With soldierly erectness, he walked out of the bar, across the lobby, and into the writing room. Jim was writing at a desk and did not look up as Blaney entered. So the contractor went round behind him and dropped his hand heavily on Jim's shoulder. "'I want to talk to you,' he said fiercely. Jim looked up as if to see who it was, and then turned back to his writing. "'Well, talk away,' he said. "'I want to see you in private,' said Blaney, excited to rage by Jim's indifference. Jim affected to consider for a moment, then he rose and led the way to the office, where he told the clerk that he wanted a room for an hour or so, and that on no account must he be disturbed. The two men climbed to the room in silence. When they reached it, Jim followed Blaney in, locked the door behind him, and put the key in his pocket. The action made Blaney nervous, and the warmth at the pit of his stomach was beginning to be succeeded by something that felt like a large lump of cold lead. "'Well,' said Jim, "'we're private enough now.' What have you got to say? Blaney pumped up all the bluster he could. All I want to find out is who wrote that story in The Watchman. That's all, is it? said Jim. I could have told you that downstairs. I wrote it. 
Then Blaney broke loose. He was working himself up to a perfect frenzy of denials, accusations, threats, and blasphemy. The man was a pitiable spectacle, and Jim, leaning back against the locked door, watched him in mingled amusement and contempt. He was surprised that Blaney should have become so utterly demoralized. He had never considered the contract a big man, or even a good fighter, but that he would go to pieces so easily was unexpected. He did not know how violent the explosion in Tillman had been. The town sided with Jim Weeks, and when the people realized how he was to be sold out, the storm exceeded the editor's wildest expectations, and Blaney was brought face to face with political ruin. Jim let the almost hysterical rage expand itself before he interrupted. Then he said, "'Shut up, Blaney. You've made a fool of yourself long enough, and I've fooled with you long enough. You've been trying ever since you were alderman to throw me down.' You've talked about how much you were going to do, and all the while we've been laughing at you. Then this McNally came along and set up you and Williams to a dinner at the Hotel Tremaine, and paid you some money and gave you this fool contract to get you to vote the Tillman City proxies his way. Jim took a copy of the contract out of his pocket and read it aloud, while Blaney listened in stupid amazement. McNally is a smart man, Jim went on, folding the contract and replacing it and he sized you up just about right when he figured he could take you in with a fake like this. That isn't worth the paper it is written on. And when you'd got fooled so you thought C&SC would pay par for your stock, what do you do but go around and tell a man you know is working for me all about it? And now, when I've got you just where I want you, where you can only wriggle, you come around and try to scare me? Do you know what you are? You're just a plain damn fool.' Blaney did not seem to hear the last words of what was probably the longest speech Jim Weeks had ever made. His attention had been riveted on something else. "'Bridge!' he exclaimed. "'Bridge gave that away, did he?' "'Yes,' said Jim. "'Bridge gave me this contract. "'There's just about one more fool thing you can do, Blaney, "'and that is to try to touch him. "'Try it. "'Why, man, if you do, I'll break you to pieces.' The words had a ring in them, but Jim quieted instantly. I'm looking out for Bridge. There was a long silence. Blaney dropped limply into a gaudy rocking chair and with a dirty handkerchief mopped the sweat out of his eyes. Jim had not moved from his position before the door. His lips were grave, but something in his eyes suggested that he was smiling. It was Jim who spoke at last. I don't believe you've got anything to say to me, and I haven't much more to say to you. You've got the Tillman proxies for 5,000 shares, and you're going to vote them in a couple of hours. You can vote them either way you like. It doesn't make much difference to me, because I win by at least 4,000, even if you go against me. But if you do, you'll find it hard work a year from now to get a city job laying bricks in Tillman. I'll guarantee that. If you choose to vote em my way, that story in the Watchman will fall by its own weight. I'll leave you alone so long as you don't monkey with Bridge. I won't monkey with Bridge, said Blaney sullenly. But I'll tell you, you're making a big mistake to take any stock in him. He's been lying to you. I never saw that contract before. He came to me and tried to get me to go up against you. And when I wouldn't, he must have got up that contract to get even with me. 
That's what made me so mad about that story in the papers. I see, said Jim with unshaken gravity. Well, there's no use in talking any more, I guess. We understand each other. And with these words, Jim unlocked the door and walked downstairs to dinner. By four o'clock it was all over. The road was won, and Jim, struggling into his overcoat, was reflecting on how beautifully success succeeds. For Blaney had not been the only one to change sides, and the result of the election had been a sweeping victory, which surprised even Jim. The stampede had caught Thompson and Wing, and the only holdings which had been voted against him were those directly represented by Porter. Porter had attended the meeting, and was surprised to find that his relief at having the fight well over was almost strong enough to make up for his chagrin and disappointment at being defeated. He met Jim at the door, and after a word of commonplaces he inquired after Harvey. "'He's getting on all right,' said Jim. "'He got a crack over the head that's bothering him a little, but it's nothing serious.' "'Weeks,' said Porter abruptly. "'I want a word with you about that affair. That attempt to kidnap him was dirty business.' I don't think I need say that it was done without my sanction. The man who was responsible for it is no longer in my employ. Good day. That, mused Jim as he drove to the northern station, is what comes of having a daughter like Miss Catherine Porter. End of chapter 22